I'm Kate Mara, and you're listening to the Audible Original American Football, presented by Michael Strahan and narrated by me. Sure, we all have our favorite teams and chase the excitement all season, but just how did football get its start, then explode in popularity? I'm taking you through the fast-paced tale of American football, its central figures, and how, rife with class conflict, football transitions from an amateur sport to one of the most prolific and valuable leagues in the world. The dramatic history is bloodier, dirtier, and more tumultuous than you know. Listen to American football and other great storytelling at audible.com or wherever you get your podcasts. American Football is an Audible original produced by The History Channel, Misher Films, and Smack Entertainment. Ask any football player, why? Why football? The answer you're most likely to get is some version of love for the game. It's been an important part of my life that has opened many doors for me. I love football. And you need to love it. Because if you don't, It'll let you know. On the rarest of occasions, there comes along someone whose adoration goes beyond love. It is something else entirely. Some might even say obsession. Whatever it is, George Hallis had it, and it was necessary. Because if he didn't, today there would be no football as we know it. I'm Michael Strahan, and this is American Football Chapter 5, Papa Bear. George Stanley Hallis was born on February 2, 1895, in Chicago, Illinois, in the Lower West Side neighborhood of Pilsen. He was the last of eight children born to Czech Bohemian immigrants Barbara and Frank Sr., but only the fourth to survive. Like many immigrant families, the Hallises ran a tight ship. Chris Willis, the head archivist of NFL Films, Hard work was definitely at the core uh, for the Hallis family. Young George Hallis sort of was instilled, you know, church and family and school. His mother really preached education and not just, you know, basic and high school, like you were going to go to college. And George worked hard. In the morning before school, he delivered newspapers. After school, he worked in the family grocery store. He cleaned his father's rental units, stoked the furnaces and shoveled coal. When he was done, it was back to the store. I think for a lot of immigrants, especially in Chicago, to try to assimilate to everybody else, you gravitated towards sports. What no one knew was, by doing so, this would unlock a part of George that would become the driving force and defining trait of his life. An all-consuming desire to win and be the best. Here's former New York Giants quarterback Eli Manning. You always want to win, and I've always felt that it's not just a commitment for a few hours. It's a life commitment to the team, to the organization. Hard work, you know, pays off. It'll make you better, make you more prepared. Before he ever set foot on a football field, Hallis's first love was baseball. By the time he reached high school, he was a star on the pitcher's mound. Here's Hall of Fame quarterback and Eli's older brother, Peyton. My dad encouraged his kids to play lots of sports. We played football and basketball and baseball. He thought sports taught you valuable lessons, taking coaching, overcoming adversity. It was Christmas Eve 1910 when George's father died. George was 15. Frank Sr. was a frail man. This affected George, also considered frail as a child and young man. 
In high school, he had been forced to play on the lightweight team because even in full uniform, he could never get past 120. He tried everything, ate everything in sight, but quite literally didn't have the stomach for it. Hallis reported to the freshman football program at the University of Illinois in Champaign in the fall of 1914, clocking in proudly at 140 pounds. It wasn't enough. So he worked harder, ate more, trained more. He swelled to 173 pounds. Here's Hallis from a 1973 interview. Well, one thing is certain, that you've got to work hard in order to be a success in football. That is what I did in college, and very fortunately, I learned way back in my high school days that I wasn't a genius, and then the only way I could succeed was to work hard. Jack Silverstein is a Chicago sports historian. He became an end, even though the end at that point was much closer to the line, and much more like a tight end, less like what we think of, what evolved into being a wide receiver. He was still smaller than most of his teammates, and was easily knocked around as a ball carrier but his instinctive skills and speed were exactly what they were looking for on defense. Mike Singletary is a Hall of Fame linebacker for the Chicago Bears and former head coach of the San Francisco 49ers. I wasn't the biggest guy in the world, so I was always focused on how do I get my leverage? How do I explode through my hips? How do I punch? How do I do everything just right where I have the advantage? all the time. Under the tutelage of legendary coach Bob Zupka, Hallis turned out to be a talented and fearless tackler and quickly made a name for himself. Even quicker, his season ended. Broken jaw. The next season, broken leg. Former safety, Malcolm Jenkins. The hardest part about our game is that the injury rate is 100%. Every single player who plays football in the NFL will get hurt at some point in time. And when those injuries happen, All of us are here to play football. We're not here (laughs) to go to the doctor. And so it's just a miserable life. But the whole time you're trying to hold the thought of getting back to play. Again, Peyton Manning. Injuries happen. When you sign up, you know, you sign up for all of it. Anybody that goes through injuries understands what a challenge it is. And I think trying to keep a positive attitude during that time and, you know, trying to Stay upbeat as you can. You know, I think having a lot of people around you to kind of help you and encourage you makes a difference. Many football players call it quits when they reach this point. Jack Silverstein. He had enough talent in baseball to have played for the Yankees. He had enough of these other opportunities and other talents that he could have gone and done something else. But as he said, I loved football. Here's Rob Gronkowski. I just knew I fit the mold of a football player. Yes, I played all the other sports. I was pretty decent at them, but I just really loved the game of football. I loved the contact of the game. I just felt like my body was built for the game of football. Mike Singletary. I needed football to help me grow. It was something that allowed me to express myself in a different way. I guess in the beginning, it was more therapy than it was anything else. I I could hit Anybody, I could hit anything and and, uh, get out my aggression, and it was fantastic. Here is Hall of Fame coach Bill Parcells. This is not a game for well-adjusted people. It's only maladjusted SOBs that participate. Hallis was determined to get back on the field. It turns out someone was on the hunt for a few good men to do just that. When George Hallis enlisted in the Navy in January of 1918, 
He volunteered to be sent out on a submarine chaser. His request was denied, and he was assigned to the sports program at the Great Lakes Training Center. There he met a host of other enlisted men that would become lifelong friends and acquaintances, none more important than a standout quarterback at Northwestern, John Leo Driscoll, better known as Patty. The Great Lakes football team featured young men who had been stars on the football field, so when Hallis and Patty were asked to coach, as well as play, they organized a team that in no time was a well-oiled machine. They beat Purdue, Iowa, and Illinois, with Hallis facing off against many of his old teammates, and tied with Notre Dame and Patty's Northwestern Wildcats, staking their claim as champions of the Midwest. On January 1st, 1919, the Great Lakes Navy Blue Jackets defeated the Mare Island Marines 17 to nothing. This was in Pasadena, California. New Year's Day, the Rose Bowl. Everyone on the Navy team was ecstatic. Everyone except George Hallis. He was furious. Late in the game, he thought he'd caught a touchdown pass in the back of the end zone. The pass is low, but Hallis scoops it up. Touchdown, Navy! But wait, here comes the ref! It was ruled incomplete. Now here he was, still stewing over a meaningless call in a blowout game while the rest of the world moved on. Classic George Hallis. Former head of officiating and longtime official, Mike Pereira, knows about these kinds of players. There's always players that are more difficult than others. And, you know, players complain. My favorite is when a player gets up and the pass is ruled incomplete and he yells at his coach. Then the coach then throws the challenge flag and in fact, it's incomplete. Those are my great moments in a game uh, when, that, when that happens. His teammates reminded Alice he had just won the national championship. He was named the game's MVP. He had been named to Walter Camp's All-America second team. And, most importantly, he was going home and he could tell his beloved mother about all these wonderful things. Of course, she didn't want to hear any of it. There was only one thing George Hallis's mother did want to hear. He was done with football. She had always been uneasy about the game. Any parent would be. Just ask two-time Super Bowl champion and 18-year NFL veteran Ben Roethlisberger. My mom and, and my wife have asked me if I ever heard them screaming up in the box when I'm about to get hit. The anguish it must put on their heart to see a loved one just get beat up for so long. I think there's a couple people in my family that were, were pretty happy when I finally decided to hang it up because they didn't have to worry about the stress anymore. Kelly Stafford, wife of L.A. Rams starting quarterback Matthew Stafford, knows the feeling. Not a lot of people know what it's like to watch your man battle in this sport. It's hard to watch, and everyone's gunning for him. Um, when he releases a ball and gets hit after, um, that's when my eyes stay to him. I don't even watch the ball and where it goes. You know, you have to remind them sometimes that they're not Superman. They're not superhuman. Again, Jack Silverstein. George Hallis made a promise to his mother that he would stop playing football because it was a dangerous sport. I'm sure that was not a promise he had ever intended to keep. That was Joe Harrigan, the executive director of the NFL Hall of Fame. This is Hallis's grandson, George McCaskey, owner of the Chicago Bears. His mother told him, stick with the railroad, George. It's steady work. You know, at the time, college football was hugely popular and professional football was kind of looked down on as something not worthy of people's attention. So he was really fighting an uphill battle. 
Hallis took a job putting his recently received engineering degree to work in the bridge design department of the Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy Railroad. George calculated how bridges handled stress. His mother couldn't be happier. George, however, was miserable. Here's Ben Roethlisberger again. I couldn't imagine having an office job my whole life. I couldn't make a nine-to-five job work, to be honest. I love the outdoors too much, and, and I couldn't sit there. I've been blessed. I've had one job my whole life, and it was this one. On one particular March day, plodding his way to work in the bitter cold, George wished he could be heading anywhere but where he was heading. His wish was about to be granted. George Hallis got a call from George Chamberlain, the general superintendent of the A.E. Staley Manufacturing Company, asking to meet him at the Sherman Hotel. Here's Mark Staley, A.E.'s grandson, talking about his great-grandfather. He was a big sports fan. He thought it was very important for the employees to get exercise. And so he started a lot of company employee sports teams. But then he just started thinking bigger. He had the forward vision of using the sports team to market his company, the Staley Manufacturing Company. And here again is Chris Willis. Mr. Chamberlain offers Hallis a unique job opportunity. It was the golden ticket to run a pro football team. (laughs) Hallis asked for a couple of things. He says, can we recruit players from college that had played in college football? And they said, yes. He said, can we pay them a certain amount of money to play? Yes. And can we practice two hours a day, uh, sometimes on company time? They said, yes. So House was totally in. Where's Decatur, Illinois? I'll be there. Now all he had to do was tell his mom. As much as it pained her, she understood how passionate he was about football. He had stability, and that's all she could ask for. And on March 28, 1920, just over a month after his 25th birthday, she watched him board a southbound train to Decatur. As it pulled away, she even feigned a smile. In Decatur, Hallis hit the ground running. He knew that he wasn't going to work in the food manufacturing business. He went to the company strictly to play football and to help football grow. Hallis set out to recruit the best of the best local talent he could find, using his connections at various colleges and from his Navy days to fill out his roster. He brought in a, you know, Dutch Sternemann and Jim McMillan and got Guy Chamberlain, who was a Nebraska All-American, to come. He was able to offer them some job opportunities there to start, so that helped. But he built a really good team because he knew players and he played against these players. Hallis coached his new team multiple practices a week, a rarity in those days, instilling discipline, physicality, and his favorite offensive scheme, the T formation. Here's Hallis himself. I liked every phase of the game, and I worked hard at every phase of the game. And that is why I uh, adopted a saying that nothing is work unless you prefer to do something else. And I prefer to work at football. Here is Chicago Bears legend and Hall of Famer Mike Ditka. There were times when I didn't like him, but there were times when I loved him. He did everything he did. He did for one reason. That was for the Chicago Bears. To make them the best franchise in football. Here's former NFL head coach and CBS analyst Bill Cower. The one thing that's consistent when you see the great ones is their level of preparation, and that's what allows them to play at a level that's higher than other people. And there's a passion they have for the game, and there's a God-given skill set that they've been given. After weeks of drilling and scrimmaging with each other, the Staley Starchmakers, soon shortened to the Decatur Staleys, 
were ready to pull it all together against competition on the road. There was just one problem. There was no one to play. Even in the best of years, pro teams came and went, with many folding before playing their first game. How would Hallis find enough competitors to cobble together a season? The answer? The American Pro Football Association. Jack Silverstein. George Hallis was one of those driving voices who was saying, we need to put something together that is cohesive and official. We hear a lot about Ralph Hay, but George Hallis was one of the people who was calling Ralph Hay to say, we should create this league. Hallis finagled his way into the car salesman's hubmobile meeting where the APFA was born. Hallis's Decatur Staley's would be granted membership, along with a few other teams. The move gave Hallis legitimacy, opponents to play, and organizational structure, at least on paper. The Decatur Staley's steamrolled the other teams, ripping off eight straight victories out of the gate. Hallis and other members of the league began to wonder if the Staley's were too good. Enter the Rock Island Independents. Rock Island is a city in Illinois, located on the Illinois-Iowa border. Earlier in the season, the Staley's defeated the Independents 10 to nothing in front of a Rock Island crowd of about 5,000, one of the largest crowds pro football had seen. Many of those in the crowd were Staley fans who'd made the trek by train, which definitely irked some of the locals. Peyton Manning. I love the fact that so many fans have their team that they're cheering for, they're keeping up with who the team's drafting and what moves we're making in free agency. And it's a, it's a year-round conversation. It's not just in the fall. There was a good amount of money on the line in bets. And once the Staley's beat the independents, a lot of locals were left angered and anxious for a rematch. Here's former All-Pro quarterback Michael Vick on being the road team. When I went into opposing team stadium, I felt like the pressure was all on them to perform in front of the aircraft. We just visited and bringing our game. We, we bringing our stuff, and, and we want to see if y'all can handle what we got. But if you're not, you're going to get embarrassed. And so that, that pressure shifted to them. Well aware of the lingering resentment as they rolled into town, Hallis booked the team's hotel accommodations in Davenport, just over the state line in Iowa. In the hotel lobby, while Hallis and a few members checked in, they watched several bookies taking substantial bets from gamblers on the independents. They'd heard that one of the independents, a player named Fred Chicken, seriously, was going to target the Staley's best defenseman, George the Brute Trafton, and put him out of the game or worse. So the Staley's struck first. Early in the game, the Brute accidentally leveled Mr. Chicken off his feet through a fence on the sidelines, knocking him unconscious. He was carried away and never returned. This sent Independence fans into a frenzy, throwing rocks and bottles onto the field and at their opposition. Hallis was sure they would attack the Staley's players when the game was over. Michael Vick again. We always, you know, approach those games as if, you know, it was us against the world. And I wouldn't have wanted it any other way because it was the best feeling in the world when you go on the road and you beat a team in their house, man. And it used to be so loud, like crowd barreling down on you, fans throwing popcorn at you. And you make one big play and it just go to silence, complete silence. You know, you take a lot out of it. As the final seconds of the game wound down, 
The Staleys had the ball and called a play that sent the Brute on a go route, running straight down the field. The clock ticked to zero, and the Brute kept running, with the rest of the team following him straight off the field into a waiting car, back over the Iowa state line and onto a train back to Illinois. Unfortunately, a late, heartbreaking one-point loss to the Chicago Cardinals dashed the Staleys' hopes of a perfect season. Mark Staley. The Akron pros were called the league champs because they had not lost a game, but the Staleys had won more games. Hallis declared that the Decatur Staleys had really won that league because they had the most wins. But, if you'll remember, the new sheriff in town, Joe Carr, laid down the law and sided with Fritz Pollard in the Akron Pros in 1920, leaving Hallis furious. After the Staley's first season, owner A.E. Staley was doing the math and it wasn't adding up. NFL Films' Chris Willis. Mr. Staley was going through a recession with his business and he needed to cut down on certain things and sports was one of the first ones. So so as enthusiastic as Mr. Staley was the first year, the second year he's looking out for his business. A.E. met with Hallis and explained his dilemma. It was as if he was reading George's mind. Maybe the team would do better in a bigger market. And Chicago made perfect sense. After the APFA title game in Cubs Park drew 12,000 fans... George Hallis was convinced that football would attract more fans if teams moved to areas where more fans were located. And what better spot than his hometown? Again, George McCaskey. Mr. Staley said to my grandfather, I can't keep supporting this team financially. Why don't you take the team to Chicago? And if you keep the name Staley's for one season, I'll give you $5,000. My grandpa immediately accepted that offer. (laughs) And with that, the Chicago Staleys were born. The date was October 6th, 1921. Their first game was October 10th. Hallis had four days to get a football team moved, find a place for them to play, and get them ready for the start of the second season of the APFA. This time, they had a chance to win. When he got into Chicago, he went right to uh, Mr. Vec, the Cubs owner, and said, can I use your ballpark? Your season will be over in October. We can use it in October, November, December. And they come to an agreement, and House had his team in Chicago, where it's been for over 100 years. Once settled in the Windy City, Hallis struggled to juggle all his newfound responsibilities. Playing and coaching was one thing, but now he was playing, coaching, and owning Here's Big Ben. I couldn't imagine being the coach, the owner, and the quarterback. It's hard enough just being the quarterback and knowing what everyone else has to do. That, that'd be pretty tough. I can't imagine that. The owning part was proving to be a challenge. So Hallis brought in a partner, Dutch Sterneman. Dutch was already the Staley's most prolific scorer. But more importantly, he was loyal to Hallis. And for George, that was the highest form of currency. The Chicago Staleys would win their first six games, including a 22-7 victory over the Cleveland Tigers that featured an aging Jim Thorpe. By this time, Thorpe had been ousted as head of the APFA and was routinely hurt, playing on one of the few teams that believed he still had anything left to offer on the field. Earlier in the summer, while A.E. Staley was crunching numbers, a young man named J. Emmett Clare attended an APFA meeting in Chicago his hometown. He was lobbying for membership of a team owned by a company he and his brother had recently purchased over in Green Bay, Wisconsin. 
The team was founded in the summer of 1919 by a company employee and former Notre Dame football player named Earl Lambeau, Curly to those who knew him. It wasn't until Agnes Aylward, Lambeau's girlfriend, suggested they might pay homage to the company who offered initial funding and practice space for the team, the Acme Packing Company, that the Green Bay Packers were truly born. Curly was known for his hot-headedness and explosive personality, a tenor taken on by his team, and they dominated their local opponents regularly. Here's Packers quarterback Aaron Rodgers. I knew all about the old teams. When I got drafted by the Packers, I knew about Bart Starr. I knew about Max McGee drinking the night before the game and coming a little hungover and making a one-handed catch to be the first touchdown in Super Bowl history. I knew about Vince Lombardi. I knew about the Ice Bowl. Those were some great football teams. Obviously, we've won 13 NFL championships in Green Bay. There's a long history of excellence in this town. This is Hall of Famer Leroy Butler. What makes the Green Bay Packers different from every other team? Oh, the Lambeau Leap. There is no leap without the fans. And that's the whole fabric of the the Green Bay Packers. So it's so fitting that this is one of the best celebrations. And even to this day, when guys score, you can jump up and thank the fans. You can't do it any other time. But in Green Bay, it's Super Bowl or bust every single year. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. The excellence of the organization has been passed down through generation, generation and player after player. There's a a history that ties itself directly to the expectations that the fans have, that the organization has, that the region has. The nickname of Green Bay is Titletown, and they expect championships, and I wouldn't have it any other way. Much like Hallis, with no real competition in sight, Curley sought teams to play elsewhere, leading them to the APFA meeting in Chicago, where they were granted membership on August 27, 1921. Three months later. Good afternoon, everybody out there. Jeff Joniak on the call. It's a beautiful day for football. The Sunday after Thanksgiving, and I don't envy any of the men out on the field today running around. Heck, I'm still full. Stuffed, you might say even. But here we are in beautiful Chicago at Cubs Park. The crowd is loud and the teams are stretching out on the field. And you've got the home team, the Chicago Staley's, formerly the Decatur Staley's now wearing orange and blue uniforms, a nod to their great head coach's cottage colors, and their opponent, one of a handful of teams to join the American Pro Football Association this year, the Green Bay Packers from Green Bay, Wisconsin. Just about 200 miles north of here, not too long of a trip, evidenced by the sheer amount of people here cheering them on. Just listen to that crowd, rooting for their home team as they meet the Staley's in the middle of the field for the coin toss. Green Bay was outmatched from the start. Lambeau takes a pitch out of the backfield, and oof, he goes down. Met hard behind the line of scrimmage by two defenders, and it probably felt like four. That kind of hit might make a curly Nazi straight. By day's end, it was a rout. The Chicago Steelers line again blows a hole through the Packers' defense. As, whoa, you see that? One of the Steelers throws a sucker punch, leaving Packers tackle Howard Buck on the turf. While downfield, Hallis is finally dragged down inside the 20. Buck, who's still on his back, holding his face, appears to have a broken nose. And it looks like Chicago's John Tarzan Taylor was the one who leveled him. The Packers players finally see their injured teammate, and all hell breaks loose. The instant bad blood between the two squads had boiled over. 
It was clear to everyone this game was just an opening salvo to a rivalry that would be bitter and fierce. No one could imagine it would also become historic. And that'll do it, folks. Final score, Chicago 20, Packers nothing. Chicago masterful all around. Green Bay, they got work to do. Coach Hallis and Coach Lambeau approaching each other at midfield, and whoa, no handshakes today. <laughs> Walked right past each other. I'm going to go out on a limb and say they're not saving the pleasantries for dinner later on. I wouldn't want to be on that field the next time these two get together. One game in, and they already look like mortal enemies. I love it. George McCaskey, again. The fact of the matter is that the rivalry has been great for the Packers over the past 100 years. It's been great for the Bears. There's geographic proximity. There's, what's the word? Enmity. There was maybe some personal animosity. I don't think Coach Alice was a big fan of Curly Lambeau. Donald Driver was a wide receiver for Green Bay and well remembers learning how his new hometown felt about Chicago when he first arrived. They hate Chicago. They hate Chicago. They hate Chicago. Okay, I understand they're right down the street, but, you know, you hate each other that bad? Again, Leroy Butler. You better not lose to the Bears. I was like, whoa. That's the first thing that was told to me when I landed in Green Bay to do a press conference after I got drafted. I better not lose to the Bears. So that was a big deal. It's the oldest rivalry in all of sports. I think they're actually tied as we tape this of all-time wins tied together. Hall of Fame coach Mike Ditka knows. One of the first things Coach Hall said, uh, we got to beat the Green Bay Packers. They're our rival. And I played against some of the greatest Green Bay Packer teams in the history of football. And he was right. They were tough. They didn't take, they didn't take anything, and they didn't give anything. It didn't matter how good you were when you played the Packers, it was a whole different ballgame. They call it the black and blue division because we're going to beat each other up. That's what we did every single year. And I, and I, and I know the rivals are always going to be there. The fans really get into it, and, and, they, and they stuck with it. Jerry Kramer used to tell me about when they played the Bears, how they used to fight before and after the game around the buses. And, and then they would sit down and smoke a cigarette together. <laughs> That's hilarious. After the victory over Green Bay, Hallis found himself in second place in the standings, with all of his scheduled games played. But Hallis remained fixated on securing the title that had eluded him the year before. What happened next is, in Buffalo football lore, referred to as the Staley Swindle. The Staley's only loss of the season had come at the hands of the undefeated and first-place Buffalo All-Americans. George Hallis asked Buffalo owner Frank McNeil for a rematch, offering a carrot too tempting to resist, another chance for a payday at Cubs Park. McNeil considered the game an exhibition, a meaningless contest with no bearing on either team's record or standing in consideration for the league title. In Hallis's mind, he was still gunning for the title, and he would get unexpected help from a long-standing rival, Fritz Pollard. In this second season, Fritz Pollard picked up just where he had left off. Fresh off his Akron Pros Championship, he was officially named co-head coach. The Pros got off to a fast start, bludgeoning opponents and roots to a 7-0 record. But with one step, things in football can turn quickly. 
Pollard got hurt. By season's end, Pollard found himself third in the standings behind Chicago and Buffalo. Pollard reached out to Hallis to schedule a game, assuming his rival would grant him a matchup as he had granted to Hallis the year before. And Hallis did. That is, until Buffalo accepted the Staley's offer of the rematch we mentioned earlier, and Hallis canceled on Pollard in order to get a crack at a title. Again, Jack Silverstein. George Hallis was driven to victory, and he was driven to do whatever it took to do that. Fritz Pollard would have been a threat to his ability to win. Pollard then reached out to Buffalo for a late-season game to keep Akron's long-shot title dream alive, trying to out Hallis Hallis. To his surprise, McNeil, who wanted more money, agreed. And the game was scheduled for December 3rd, the day before Buffalo was to face the Staleys in their previously agreed-upon exhibition. Pollard and his pros laid it all on the line. They pushed Buffalo to the brink, but came up short in a brutal 14-0 contest. Pollard had lost his chance at back-to-back titles. But ironically, he set up his old rival, Hallis, for victory. A blackened and bruised Buffalo showed up in Chicago the very next day and lost what they believed was merely an exhibition game. It turned out to be anything but. Hallis used the victory to pad his team's win column and tie Buffalo, ultimately declaring the Staley's champions once again. He argued that while Chicago and Buffalo split their two matchups, the second end of season game meant more, and the combined score of both Buffalo-Chicago matchups was 16-14 in favor of Chicago. George Hallis was obsessed with winning. He fit that template of that obsessive, intense, passionate, do everything to win. Football consumes him. You've got like Bill Belichick, you've got that obsessive thirst for victory. This desire to win at all costs is something Hall of Famer Howie Long understands. There's physical gifts and there's character and mental gifts. I want to beat you individually or collectively. I don't care if it's checkers. I don't care if it's dominoes. I I don't care what it is. I want to beat you. George McCaskey. But I remember hearing that Coach Hallis would do something on the edge of the rules and then at the next league meeting pass a rule that would ban what he had just done. Sally Jenkins is a sports columnist for The Washington Post. American football is inherently a rule-breaking experience. American football is this bastardized thing that jumps up out of the mud that is breaks every rule of good manners in, and sportsmanship. Hallis' move infuriated McNeil and the city of Buffalo, who believed they were deceived by the promise of an exhibition. Once again, Joe Carr was challenged to play peacemaker. On one side, he had Hallis trying to find an honest way to admittedly steal the title, at least on the field. On the other, Carr had a Buffalo team chasing extra dollars without thinking of the league. The NFL Hall of Fame's Joe Harrigan. This is two teams that were critical to the league. Buffalo was a very uh, strong city at that point in time. So they wanted Buffalo in their league. They wanted Chicago in their league, obviously. Uh, so there was no favoritism in the sense of trying to get Hallis the win. And, and Hallis was just a guy at the time. You know, he's, he wasn't the George Hallis we all grew to know and love. George McCaskey. The teams in the NFL 
our business partners, but competitors on the field. That's unique to our sport, unique to our business. Alice had technically followed the rules, or lack thereof, underscoring the imminent need for the rule changes that were soon to come at the forefront, creating a definitive beginning and ending date for each season. Again, Bill Cower. We all have to abide by the rules, but certainly you can try to manipulate and try to do a lot of different things along the way. You know, what, what are your options within the rules? So I think you got to be creative at, at times, push the envelope. I think that's also a way of staying forward thinking and, and being ahead of the trends. In the end, Carr sided with Chicago, naming them 1921 APFA champions. So I think the outcome came out the way it should have been. They awarded the right team, the right title. It was a fair judgment. The folks in Buffalo to this day don't think so, but Joe Carr made the decision, uh, along with the vote of the ownership, that this is the champion. Hallis had finally done it. He was a champion, the best American in the most American of sports. And in true fashion, he was already looking toward the next season and plotting how to bring another title to Chicago. Again, George McCaskey. So in 1921, they were the Chicago Staley's. They played at Wrigley Field. And when it came time to rename the team, he figured a lot of football teams just duplicated the name of the baseball team in the park they were playing. But then he had another thought. Football players are bigger than baseball players. If baseball players are Cubs, what's bigger than a Cub? The Bears. The Bears. The Bears. The Bears. The Bears. There was one more name change coming in 1922. By this time, Joe Carr had begun instituting numerous rules and policies to better organize the league's seasons and produce a more credible product on the field. Carr was ready to move forward, and so was Hallis. Here's Chris Willis. George Hallis is just like Joe Carr, that he could see that the sport of pro football, even when it was really nothing, that it could become something big. I think he just saw all that was great about football. It's the ultimate team sport. Yes, uh, some positions are important, but without everybody working together, you're not going to succeed. It's a classic example of get knocked down nine times, get up 10, about being smart while playing the game. There's great strategy involved, and uh, it's just the greatest game. Joe Carr, he was the structure and George Hallis, to me, was the engine, the drive, the passion. We have a, uh, a plaque here at Hallis Hall. Uh, one of the lines on that plaque is, by sheer force of his enormous will, he demanded that America pay attention to pro football. And I think that says it very well. Unified by a shared vision, the league needed to grow. Hallis said the name had to sound first class. There was nothing like this football this league, anywhere. And so that's why he suggested the National Football League. And this NFL would have to take place outside its current comfort zone in middle America to places it had never succeeded, with people who had never embraced it, 